podcast this week, Nick Williams from the Thorpe History Group gives an insight into the circumstances surrounding the Thorpe Rail Accident of 1874, in which 25 people lost their lives. Don't forget to visit our website for images and more information, and thanks for listening. Hello again. <laughs> Uh, thank you for coming. Um, thought train crash of 1874. Well, what happened? Well, it was the worst head-on collision in the history of British Railways up to that time. Two trains travelling on the same line, the same single track line, collided head-on about 100 yards east of the bridge by the rush cutters at 9.45 on the evening of the 10th of September, which was a Thursday in 1874 in pouring rain. The two trains were the London Express, which had just left Thorpe Station at Norwich, and the the Yarmouth Mail, which had just left Brundle on its way to Norwich. At least 26 people were killed. Probably there was another fatality who died a bit later, a few months later, and over 70 were injured, some of them extremely seriously. And the accident was basically due, like so many of these things, to mistakes, misunderstandings between the staff at Thorpe Station, and I'll go on to that in a minute. (coughs) Before going into the detail of it, I just want to try and set a picture of what the Norfolk Railways were like at the time. And I think you have to bear in mind that in 1874, railways were relatively new in in Norfolk. Norfolk was later than other areas in adopting railways. The first railway in Norfolk was the line between Norwich and Great Yarmouth, which opened in May 1874. Work started at two places, at Posick and at Reedham simultaneously, 12 months before, and a cost of tw- at a cost of £10,000 per mile, the railway was completed in a year. When they finished and the first trains were running, the journey time was 50 minutes, and there were four trains a day. If you wanted to travel from Norwich to Great Yarmouth, it would have cost you three shillings and sixpence in first class. In third class, it cost you one shilling and threepence. The disadvantage, disadvantage was that the carriages were open and you had to stand. You can imagine, <laughs> can't you? The, tra- the trains only went at about sort of 15, 20 miles an hour, but even so, on a day like today, I think it would be a, a bit of a, a windy journey. Within a year, Norwich was linked to London via Cambridge, and you could be at the Shoreditch Terminal within four or five hours. And that compared to about 14 hours previously by stagecoach. Um, it meant that not only could people get to and from London, but also fresh milk, vegetables, stuff like that could be sent to London quickly and kept fresh. And also, businesses like Coleman's could not only import raw materials by train, but they could also distribute their finished products all across the country. And of course, we're all familiar with Coleman's mustard and their famous bull on the mustard packets. The railway network spread quite steadily across England and across Norfolk, but not all of the lines were profitable, and many of the individual companies eventually merged. And in 1862, the Great Eastern Railway was formed, which took in nearly all the railways to the east of Norwich and to the south, linking into London. 
Running the railways in those early years was very challenging. It was a new, fast, much faster mode of transport. And the only thing I can compare it to is the introduction of plane travel in the early part of the 20th century. It could also be dangerous. There were lots of uh, reports of accidents and the dangers were not only for the passengers but also <coughs> for the train staff. And there are quite a few instances where men working on the railways were killed because they were unaware of the power and speed of the engines. The job of the engine driver and the fireman were crucial. The engine driver was at the head of his profession and involved years spent learning every inch of the route. It was also quite difficult a job because they operated in either semi-enclosed or completely open locomotive cabs so they were exposed to the elements, the rain, the wind and of course if some of you have travelled on a steam train, you'll remember that each time you leant out the window, you got the smuts in your eyes, so they were exposed to that as well. Many of the lines in the Great Eastern area were single track, and that was because they could lay them quite quickly to begin running services, and also because some of the railway companies, when they were first set up, wanted to make sure that their competitors didn't get a line into a particular place, and that's in a way why... Norwich was a location which had three stations, as you're probably aware. There was Thorpe, there was Victoria, and there was City Station. And these were all built by competing companies wanted to, uh, wanting to get the Norwich trade. In 1863, of 16,000 miles of railway track in England, more than 7,000 were single track, and many of those were in Norfolk. The line between Norwich and Brundle was single track, and the passage of trains was basically controlled by the timetable. All that was needed if the train was on time was for the duty inspector at Norwich or at Brundle to issue a ticket to the driver telling him he had permission to proceed. However, if trains were running late or if there were additional trains, for example in the um, fishing season there would be additional fish trains that ran from Yarmouth, the, the control of the trains was done by the telegraph operators both at Norwich and at Brundle. At Brundle the station master did everything. He issued the tickets to the engine drivers, he controlled the telegraph, but in Norwich there was a separate telegraph clerk and that was one of the things that led to the, the problems. At Thorpe, because it was a larger and busier station, the <coughs> instrument was worked by a telegraph clerk under the instruction of an inspector. <coughs> Excuse me. If it was necessary to alter the arrangements for trains using the single line, the inspector would write out a note on a set message pad, sign it, hand it to the telegraph clerk and ask him to signal Brundle. Once that had been done, the train would be sent on to Brundle and Brundle would acknowledge the signal and write it in a message book. Clear so far? At the same time, the inspector would give the engine driver a signed chit giving him permission to proceed. So what happened on that Thursday when things went so wrong? Normally the London to Norwich Express, which continued to Great Yarmouth, would leave London about 5, arrive in Norwich at about 9pm. After 10 minutes it would then proceed to Great Yarmouth if the line was clear. The mail would leave Yarmouth at about 8.40 and was due in Norwich an hour later. That particular evening, the London Express was running late. 
when the night inspector, a man called Alfred Cooper, came on duty at about quarter past nine, he went to the station master and said, can we call on the mail from Yarmouth, which was waiting at Brundle, because the express was late. The station master's reply seems to have been rather ambiguous, and Cooper went away thinking that he'd been given permission to call up the mail. He went straight to the uh, telegraph clerk and said to him, call up the mail. The clerk sent a message to Brundle saying, send up the mail. However, Cooper had walked away without signing the chit, which was impressed on all involved that they must sign the chits before a message was approved. A minute or so later, the London Express steamed into the station, arriving a bit late, and the other inspector had prepared to issue a ticket for that express to continue to Great Yarmouth, but he saw Cooper walking across the station and said to him, has the uh, Yarmouth mail been told to come up? And for some reason, which is just unexplainable, Cooper said to him no, when he'd already authorised it to do so. <coughs> the express was then given permission. It left for Brundle at 9.31. Within minutes, they realised what had happened. Cooper went to the telegraph station and said, have you sent up the, the mail from Brundle? The telegraph clerk said, yes, of course I have, because you told me to. They realised what had happened, but there was nothing they could do with it. One train had left Brundle, the other train had left Norwich, it was dark, it was pouring with rain, and a collision was inevitable. At, no <coughs> excuse me, at 9.45, the two trains collided head-on, roughly, as I said earlier, about 100 yards to the east of the bridge. Do you know where Girling Loke is off Yarmouth Road? Yeah, just up from the rush cutters? Yeah. Well, if you walk down Girling Loke, and there's a, a level crossing uh, over the railway line, if you go to the the um, Barry, and look over to your right. It's just there, and you can see the see the river from the um, level crossing there. The result was catastrophic, and according to a witness who looked at the accident immediately afterwards, and I'll read this: the engines reared up into an almost perpendicular position, and the carriages mounted one on the top of another and gradually sunk down into an altogether inconceivable mass of rubbish and ruins. Carriages were piled one on top of the other, others had been thrown on their sides and had rolled some half dozen yards away from the line. Another report concluded that the locomotive of the Yarmouth Mail had climbed about 15 feet above that of the Express before rolling over onto the carriages with terrible force. It could have been worse, of course, because it was only a hundred yards from the river and the whole lot could have gone into the river if the accident had happened a little bit nearer Norwich. Another factor which probably reduced the number of casualties was that on the um, London Express, immediately behind the locomotive was a horse box and three empty trucks which took the force of some of the impact. Unfortunately, in the horse box was a mule and the poor old mule was killed. The landlord of the Thorpe Gardens, a man called John Hart, was on the scene within minutes and he later described what he'd had to do. When he got there, despite it being dark, he could see that several of the carriages from the London Express were on the, br on the bridge itself. So he ran along the train imploring people not to step down because if they had done they would have probably gone straight into the river. 
It's not known whether any passengers went into the river. They dragged it twice but didn't find any bodies. Both trains would probably have been travelling at about 25 to 30 miles an hour and the impact, as I explained earlier, would have been severe. It was dark, it was raining, visibility would have probably been about two to three hundred yards. Nevertheless, it's quite clear that the driver of the Yarmouth mail train, John Pryor, and his fireman had seen the approaching express, had screwed down the regulator on the engine and applied the brake on the tender to slow down the trains, but to no great effect. <coughs> the noise of the collision was described as being like a clap of thunder, followed by two large studs, and it brought people from all the houses along the Yarmouth Road, including some of the local dignitaries such as William Burbeck and Henry Patterson, the brewer. They were faced with an appalling scene. Dead and dying passengers and railwaymen were strewn about the wreckage in the pitch dark. All that could be heard was the steam from the damaged locomotives and the cries of the injured as they called for assistance. At Thorpe Station, the realisation of what had happened struck home straight away. The station master was not paralysed, he sprung into action. He sent cabs to as many of the doctors in Norwich as he could think of, asking them to come and assist, and about ten of them responded. He then arranged for a special train to take the doctors and other staff to the scene of the accident. One of the doctors who, was, who responded, a Dr Pitt, was so keen to help that he didn't wait for the train to be set up, but walked from Thorpe Station to the crash site to help out. <coughs> At the scene, because it was dark, there were no lights, what they did, they broke up bits of wood that had been uh, thrown to one side from the crash and built bonfires on either side of the track. But it illuminated a very nightmarish scene of blood-soaked survivors struggling from the wreckage and corpses being extricated. But gradually, everybody was recovered, dead and dying. There were even some remarkable escapes. And Mr White from St Giles was trapped for four hours before being rescued uninjured. He ended up being jammed face down beneath a carriage and to prevent him from fainting, and I've never read this, this uh, cure anywhere else, a handkerchief was soaked in brandy and attached to a stick which was then placed in his mouth. So I don't know whether it did him any good medically, but he probably felt a bit better for it. Several passengers walked completely unscathed from the wreckage and helped with the rescue. And also a prominent Norwich doctor, Peter Ead, who was cut about the face and suffering from shock, got out of the wreckage and went to help people. At the Thorpe Gardens public house, a room was set aside to accommodate the injured and beds were moved into it to provide for them. A reporter from the local paper obviously got in there to have a look at what was going on and he recorded a pitiful scene. On hastily constructed temporary beds lay some half dozen horribly maimed and disfigured sufferers whose groans went to the hearts even of the medical men. In the corner lay the corpses of a man, a woman and a pretty little child, not more than four or five years old. On the opposite side were the mortal remains of a woman who appeared to be nothing but a chaotic mass of clothing. Between these bodies lay the wounded. Once the doctors on the scene had treated the injured, they were, many of them were ferried back to Thorpe Station. Some were sent to the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital or they were sent home. 
others were taken to the Royal Hotel at the top of um, Prince of Wales Road where they were treated before being allowed to go home. Of course, by, by this time word had got round Norwich that there'd been a train crash, there'd been lots of people injured and killed and there were huge crowds at Thorpe Station to get the latest news of what had happened. The dead bodies were taken either to Thorpe Station by train or they were put in Fields Boathouse which was just, to the, um, just cl close to the Thorpe Gardens public house. By midnight there were several bodies laying in there. The search of the crash site went on till 4am <coughs> on the Friday morning. The accident had happened on the Thursday evening. After this the clearance of the wreckage began and there were at least 15 truckloads of iron, wood, clothing, bric-a-brac and everything which was taken to Thorpe Station. But by 2pm on the Friday afternoon the line had been reopened, which is quite staggering really. Because the, there was such interest in it, a strong force of railway police, supplemented by policemen from Norwich, were sent to the, the scene to um, keep order, keep the crowds away, and also to try and prevent pilfering. But rather sadly, there were one or two instances of pilfering. One old woman was caught stripping the lining from a wrecked carriage, and the body of uh, a London auctioneer was found to have been robbed of his watch and wallet. By Saturday, the sight of the crash had attracted so many people <coughs> that they had to try and block it off. People thought, flocked to the Thorpe Gardens to have a look, and because it was quite difficult to see the site from there, people even hired boats to go along and have a look. <coughs> at one point, uh, a report says that the Reverend John Patterson, who was the vicar at the church on um, River Green, addressed the crowds on the awful event that had taken place. I don't know what he could have said about it, but he did his best, obviously. Initially, the death toll was reported as 17, but within a few days it was clear there were more than that. Um, and within about two or three days, 23 were known to have died. A further two subsequently died of injuries in hospital, and a young woman named Jane Faulkner died six weeks later of her injuries. And there was probably a 27th person, but I haven't been able to track that person down. The dead represented a cross-section of the city's population, including Dr Bransby Francis, who was a well-known local surgeon, and George Womack, who was one of the city's most um, successful drapers. He was rather unfortunate because when he got on the train to come back from Yarmouth, when he'd been seeing his girlfriend, his wife lived in Norwich, um, <laughs> no, it's true, it's true. <laughs> a young woman with a child asked if she could swap places. So they swapped places, he was killed, and they both survived. But the saddest tale of all was probably that of John Betts, who was a stoker with the Great Eastern Railway, who was travelling with his wife and child. He and his wife were killed, but the young, his young son survived. Um, the driver and fireman of both of the trains were killed. The driver of the London Express was a chap called Thomas Clark, who came from Thorpe, and who's buried in the Thorpe Cemetery on Yarmouth Road. His headstone is still there. It's, if you go down the, part, the main path, do you know the large yew tree in the cemetery? Well, you will if you go there. <laughs> it's just to the right there. So Thomas Clark, something to look for in the cemetery. Um, some of those who survived were severely injured. They had fractured skulls, broken legs, blo broken thighs. And one unfortunate woman, Miss Ramsdale of Essex Street in Norwich, 
had to have a leg amputated. She was a long time in recovering. She was still laying at the Thorpe Gardens in November and was only really well enough to get out of bed in the following January and get out and about. But, as I said earlier, some passengers escaped without a scratch. One person commented to the local press that all he'd felt was a slight, a slight shudder as the trains collided, so he was a lucky man. Within a few days, they held the preliminary inquest so that um, bodies could be taken away for burial after being identified. The inquest took place at two places. One at Thorpe Station, where the bodies of Womack and a man called George Page were laid out. And there were 17 at the Thorpe Gardens, where they used the, the what, what we'd call the west wing of the um, Thorpe Gardens. It's now the, the rush cutters. You know the building to the, as you're looking at the pub, the building to the right, the two-storey building to the right? Well, they used that to lay out all the bodies and hold the inquests. Many of the dead were severely injured. James Pryor, who was a fireman on the Yarmouth Mail, had been badly scalded by escaping steam and received a fearful blow to the head. After all the inquests were completed, um, verdicts of manslaughter were found against Cooper, who was the inspector at Thorpe Station, and Robson, who was the telegraph clerk, who had sent the message to Brundle. The burials began soon after the inquests. There were several in Earlham, some at St Mark's in Leightonham, some at Rosary, at the Rosary Cemetery, and Thomas Clark was buried at the cemetery on Yarmouth Road. He left a widow and five children, and during the service there was a rather unfortunate experience, because just as the Reverend John Patterson, the same man who went out and spoke to people after, immediately after the crash was speaking, <coughs> a train passed on the line nearby, and Clark's widow became hysterical, and had to be removed from the building. It also seems to have unsettled the vicar to such an extent that he was no longer able to proceed. As I said earlier, Clark's headstone is still there, so if you want to walk, do go and have a look. The Board of Trade, who were responsible for the railways, ordered an inquiry into the accident to consider three things. The system used on single-line working, the causes of the accident, and how a repetition of it could be avoided. It was held at the Guildhall in Norwich within ooh, 10 days of the accident happening on the 21st and 22nd of September. It was adjourned for a few days and reconvened on the 28th and it completed its work the following day. So they really got on with it. It had 33 witnesses, including the staff at Thorpe Station, including Cooper and Robson and the station master. The most important witnesses, of course, were Robson, who was only 17, and Alfred Cooper. Both had solicitors with them because they knew they were faced, likely to face serious charges. Their evidence differed strongly, as you can imagine. Cooper denied he'd ordered <coughs> Robson to send up the mail, and Robson could not give a satisfactory explanation of why he had sent the message without it being signed by Cooper. The inspector who conducted the Board of Trade inquiry made some very, very damning conclusions. He said that the single line system had worked well up to that point. Cooper and Robson were completely to blame for what had happened, although he acknowledged that their accounts contradicted one another. And also in the telegraph office, when the message was sent, there were four other railway people chatting to Robson 
and clearly affecting his concentration. After, after this, um, Cooper and Robson were sent for trial on charges of manslaughter and they stood trial on in April 1875 at the Norwich Assizes. Robson was acquitted, probably due to his youth and his limited um, responsibility, but Cooper was found guilty, although the ju jury did ask the judge to show mercy. The judge commented, however, that although he would take the jury's recommendations into consideration, he could not allow a case of this nature to pass without a serious sentence, and Cooper was given eight months hard labour. It seems there was a lot of public sympathy for Cooper. The people who worked at the railway company worked very long hours. They both worked 12-hour shifts. Cooper had a wife and six children. He had spent all his savings because he'd been suspended from the job. And people in the city set up a fund which raised £100 to keep his family from the workhouse until he came out of prison. Cooper left prison a few months after that. He retired to, he moved to Manchester where he became a, a fishmonger, which was probably a lot less stressful than being an <coughs> inspector on the railways, and died in 1893. For him, he did his eight months, he moved away, but there were a lot of people who were in serious straits. John Pryor, the fireman on the Yarmouth Mail, left a widow and six children. Thomas Clark, the engine driver of the London Express, left a widow and five children as well, children from eight weeks old to ten years old. Other railwaymen left lots of children, so a public appeal was launched, which eventually raised £3,100. The railway company gave £200. Um, the other factor that came into play now was people were pretty angry about what had happened, because they didn't blame Cooper, they didn't blame Robson, but they blamed the Great Eastern Railway.